0: Dad called me up three days ago or two days ago, and um, as most of you know, he's in a pretty rough state, physically speaking, and uh, he doesn't really keep up with what's going on, and I don't either, but somehow I get filled in from time to time, and he had heard enough and he asked, could you just fill me in on, what, on what's happening in the world right now? And when I did the best I could at doing that, he said, does the church know what's going on? And I said, well, I I don't know. I don't I can't say as they do. And he said, well, he said, there are times where the events taking place around us are more than just random events. They amount to the fulfillment of scripture and biblical prophecy. And he said, at such times, we need to make sure that we are all on the same page, hearing the same voice. And so he, he really requested that we make an effort to communicate this to you today. Amen. It's hard to talk about any of these, any of the current events without seeming to align with one side or the other. You take, for example, the coronavirus. That's not what we're going to talk about today, but you take that as an example, and you see how politicized the matter has become. So that one side stands to gain from more people dying. One side stands to gain from exaggerated statistics or falsifications on various levels. But by the same token, another side stands to gain by glossing over problems. You know, somebody asked me at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic, they said, is it the place of government to be imposing these restrictions on us? And I think I could say, absolutely not. But that doesn't answer whether the restrictions should be imposed by us on ourselves. Do you see the trick there? The government doesn't have any prerogative from God or from their own laws to become the shepherd and guardian of our health. But the church and the family does, doesn't it? We're supposed to take those responsibilities. So the question is not whether what should be done, it's who should be doing it. We believe that it is the responsibility of the church and small communities and the family to take such precautions. But in taking them, you can almost not avoid being aligned with one side or the other. If you wear a mask, then you're a liberal and you're a Trump hater. (laughs) And if you don't wear a mask, then you hate minority communities, and you're a Trump follower. (laughs) Trust me, I'm not wearing a mask this morning, but it's not because I'm a Trump follower or a hater of minorities. You see how wicked and sinister and total the politicization of the matter is. Amen. And we want to avoid that. But in our effort to avoid partisanship, Political partisanship, we don't want to neglect to call a spade a spade and to know the truth in such a way as to prepare accordingly. So I ask that in anything that I share, you would trust that we're not picking one political side or the other. But in our effort to avoid being aligned, we can't either avoid the truth, can't avoid realities that we do need to face just because they favor one side or the other. I look at the overarching change that happened in this country in 2016, and I think that one aspect of that change was that the movement that largely was comprised of Christians who held a transcendent honor in their hearts toward God, that movement went through a change, a transformation, whereby it shed many of the accoutrements that had belonged, that had defined it up to that point. Nasty, old accoutrements like civility, humility, grace, even what is called statesmanship. And it boldly pressed into a new brand. Slap them in the face, pull all stops, pull no punches, say it like it is no matter how inflammatory. And in doing that, in stepping outside of even the old conventions of civility on whatever level they had been maintained, we have to recognize that the Elohim of God's wrath and His order are going to view us differently, are going to view a state or a government administration differently. This is exemplified in Babylon when Nebuchadnezzar was king. See great Babylon that I have built? Did God sanction Babylon as a culture? Was Babylon the apple of his eye? And yet we see that when Nebuchadnezzar reached a certain threshold of hubris, the judgment and the dealings of God were released against him and his nation. And that when he just simply restored a certain measure of restraint on his own hubris, again the favor... of of the providential favor returned to some extent. It doesn't mean God is categorically sanctioning one or the other. Do you follow? And in the same way, we can see administrations who were really, who made poorer decisions, who made Poorer choices, whether by appointments or regulation or taxation, et cetera, et cetera. And yet perhaps as individuals, those leaders may have had some measure of internal restraint, however fleeting, however insufficient. They may have had some measure of restraint that would have providentially held at bay the violent antagonistic forces that have been simmering beneath the surface for so long. Now, when administrations align perfectly with the devil and his strategic plan for the world, Jesus indicates that he will not divide his own house. Do you follow me? So, we should expect prosperity when and peace, and tranquility when philosophically and spiritually the nation is cheering on the progress of totalitarianism and global statism. Conversely, we should expect explosive violence and trouble, whether in the form of the 9-11 attacks or in the form of the violence that we see now. Whenever people are starting to question Their total submission to a total state. But in such an environment, it becomes all the more important that the leaders, however vitiated their Christianity may be, they have to walk in some measure of humility or else they become like Nebuchadnezzar who was used by God in a secondary sense but who also was tragically reduced And so, from a spiritual perspective, we can recognize that these times are seasons of unprecedented trouble, unprecedented scrutiny, even unprecedented unfairness toward one side. And without becoming party to that one side, we can call a spade a spade, and we can recognize that the heart of the ruler is in the hands of God. Even a nation as marginal to God's heart as Babylon can incur extra wrath, extra providential trouble because of the pride of its leaders. And yet, on the other side, one side we're told in in the book, Left, Right, or Upwards, we're told that The vision, the driving force behind the two political parties in in America over the past 50 years, the vision is very distinct. One side traditionally viewed family and local community, voluntary society as the place for positive good, for loving, for helping, for aiding, for completing for creating, and the other side, this conservative side, viewed the government as a necessary evil to hold back the forces of darkness, the forces of violence, so that free societies would be free to do their creative, positive thing. The other side does not have that same view. They view the government as the society, as the community, as the force for positive good in the world. They conceive of no cohesive community outside of the government. So traditionally, up until recently, the fervor has always been predominantly on one side. The violence, the intensity, the radicalism has predominantly, and I emphasize that word because not exclusively, but predominantly, it has existed on one side because it is a religion for one side. Government is the whole of their life. Government is the whole of their solutions. Government is to be the healer, is to be the rabbi teacher, is to be the protector, the El Shaddai, is to be the community, the place where the poor are made whole. Amen? It's not, in Paul's Romans 13 definition, he who bears the sword to punish the evildoer. It is the community. And so there is more enthusiasm, excitement, fervor, on one side, traditionally, and more pragmatism on the other side, traditionally. But that has changed. Because the right has been co-opted by a new, slightly altered nationalism that is as fervent as anything we have seen on the left. Now, we haven't seen it in its violent ramifications yet, but now we have a religious fervor on one side, and a religious fervor on the other side. And what is that the recipe for, brothers and sisters? A terribly heated, violent conflict. And whether it's now or soon, if this doesn't dissipate, we have to face that there is trouble on the horizon. Jesus said, you know how to read the signs of the weather. You can say, red sky at night, it's going to be fair weather tomorrow or red sky in the morning. It's going to be bad weather today. But then he said, you hypocrites, you don't know how to read the signs of the time. And the Lord troubled me recently. Why would Jesus rebuke and reproach undiscernment as hypocrisy? Only if that blindness was rooted in an affection that was counter to our stated devotion to the kingdom. The saying goes, love is blind. So if we are blind to the signs of the times, Jesus can call us hypocrites because we're in love with the world and the things of the world. That's why the love of the Father is not in us, much less the discernment of the Father. And what we want is not to be so infatuated So affectionate toward one side or the other that we cannot see what Jesus warns us. Many will not see because of hypocrisy. They claim they're not of this world, they claim they're part of a kingdom from another place, they claim that they want to come out from among them and be separate so that He will be their God. But in their lived reality, they have one community. Now, right and left both have one community, and it is politics. And because of that love, they are blind because love is blind. They are in love with the world. They are in love with the beast as they ride it through the world as their only vehicle for change and progress, right and left alike. And what we have seen is... And what we see this morning is that their blindness and their fervor and their ungodly devotion has set in motion an earthquake which we fear will destabilize and ultimately bring down this nation. In 2016, When the Secretary of State under the Obama administration, Hillary Clinton, was running for president, she came under intense scrutiny for her handling of the Benghazi raid and massacre there, and she was losing traction in the election. The DNC, the Democratic National Committee, hired a law firm called Fusion GPS, and a lawyer in that law firm named Christopher Steele. They paid that law firm $9 million to acquire opposition research, otherwise known as oppo research, on their opponent, then candidate Donald Trump. What we now know as of emails that have been released in the last month is that their operatives, namely Christopher Steele, who was a former MI6 agent known to the CIA and FBI, they reached out to Russian counterparts. It is known now that the Russian counterpart who gave them the information they were seeking was a Russian Kremlin agent known for three years to the CIA and FBI as an agent for, for false dissemination of information from Russia. They paid $9 million to acquire this dossier that became known as the Steele dossier. In this dossier, one of Trump's campaigners, a man by the name of Page, was, came under scrutiny for his contact with Russia. Immediately, John Brennan, who was the head of the CIA, collaborated with the Obama administration and sent a a memorandum to then Senate Minority Leader Harry Reid, in which he alerted Harry Reid that an investigation should be called. Mind you, the CIA knew who the Russian asset was that was providing the bogus information to Christopher Steele. And they knew that Christopher Steele was paid for in the amount of $9 million from the DNC and the Clinton campaign. But they didn't mention that to Reed or the rest of the Senate when Reed sparked an investigation, called on the FBI to investigate this dossier and the possible links between the Trump campaign and Russia. I'm sure some of you have heard what ensued The Steele dossier became official justification for obtaining an FBI warrant from the FISA court, the secret intelligence court, which would give the FBI a warrant to wiretap and surveil the agents in question and all of their connections through the Trump campaign, effectively authorizing the FBI to serve the purposes of a counter-political campaign to gain smear information against their political rival. In papers presented to the FISA court to obtain this spy warrant on Carter Page, FBI lawyer Kevin Kleinsmith falsified evidence. This is now... Public record and not denied, this man has, has been brought under charges by the Justice Department. When he sent the warrant to the judges that issued, when he sent the application to the judges who issued the warrant against the Trump associates, he changed a key sentence. It said that Carter Page was a CIA, CIA uh, operative. Carter Page was the uh, Trump campaigner who was having these connections with Russia. But he was also, for multiple years, an, an operative of the CIA. If the FISA court had known that he was an operative of the CIA, it would have given potential explanation for his random meetings with Russians. So the FBI lawyer who applied for the warrant changed the word he is an operative of the CIA and he added the word he is not an operative of the CIA. And then they made the application under these false pretenses and the FISA court issued the warrant and a comprehensive surveillance program began against the Trump campaign. As a result, in a bipartisan move by a largely duped Congress, specifically the Senate, Senate Republicans and Democrats appointed a prosecutor, an prosecu- uh, a, a independent prosecutor, James Comey. Meanwhile, the Trump campaign won. When they were in their first days in the White House and hadn't got their act together, James Comey, who was the head of the FBI, he sent agents to interview their top national security advisor, General Flynn. Flynn was told this is a casual interview, and you don't need legal counsel, and we don't need the White House counsel, and we don't need the White House uh, chief of staff involved. We just want to have a casual talk. What Flynn didn't know is that the agents who were coming to him had transcripts of wiretapped conversations that Flynn had had with his Russian counterparts. Totally legal, and yet he didn't know that they were wiretapped, that they had the printed transcripts of his conversations, and they were coming to see if they could trap him in a discrepancy. They're going to ask him about conversations from months prior while looking at the transcript, and if he lies to them, or if he is inaccurate, they will charge him with perjury because he's lying to a federal agent. So the auspices of the interview was very casual and very false. They didn't, Flynn didn't know he had been wiretapped. He didn't know that this was a trap. But the FBI handwritten notes, the agents who who had this interview, say in their handwritten notes that their purpose, their object is one, to get him to turn against the Trump campaign, or two, if that's not possible, to trap him in a lie for the purpose of using his perjury charge as leverage to get him to turn against his boss. They succeeded. Flynn was not accurate with whatever he told them about conversations months prior. And as a result, they charged him with lying to a federal agent and threatened him with prison. Not only that, but they threatened his son with prosecution, but promised him that if he, would, if he would sign a plea deal, then they would treat him lightly, they would handle his sentence lightly, and they wouldn't prosecute his son. He signed it, he signed a plea deal acknowledging that he had lied to a federal agent after he was shown the comparison. So the top Trump security advisor was removed from the picture and the operation called Crossfire Hurricane proceeded. In all, the investigation by Mueller lasted 675 days, employed a team of 19 attorneys, 40 FBI agents, and spanned 13 countries, resulting in 500 witnesses, 2,800 subpoenas, 500 search warrants, warrants, and cost taxpayers nearly $40 million. It altered, many believe, the results of the midterm 2018 election, shifting the Congressional House back into the hands of the Democrats and preparing for the impeachment that was coming. The result, after nearly, a year of cross, after nearly two years of crossfire hurricane and Mueller's investigation, no evidence or charges were made of Trump's supposed collusion with Russia. Little did they know that the man who provided the information was known to the C- from Russia was known to the CIA and FBI as a disseminator of false information. He was a Russian agent. The man who received the information on our side, on the US side, was part of a law firm paid $9 million by a counter political party to gather this false information. So in a twist of irony, The nation was put through three years of investigations for an accusation of Russia collusion, and Russia collusion most certainly did take place. Recently, the Trump administration, Justice Department, dropped charges against three-star General Michael Flynn, but an Obama-appointed federal judge won't let them drop them. So he's still in court. He had to mortgage his house to pay for his legal bills, and he's still, as we speak, he's still in court. In 2019, Mr. Trump asked newly elected Ukrainian President Zelensky to learn if the DNC had requested that Ukrainian administration dig up dirt on Paul Manafort, his campaign chairman. He also sought any information concerning Biden's corruption by granting influence for cash. Immediately, they dropped the Russia collusion narrative and they impeached Trump. In the fastest impeachment hearings that have ever occurred in the U.S., they impeached him for offering a quid pro quo, that is, money for power, saying to Zelensky, I'm going to withhold this aid unless you give me dirt. The Republicans retorted that The aid was not held beyond what was normal for all other countries that had no such claim of a quid pro quo, and that he eventually got the aid without any of the political dirt. But suffice it to say, everybody was up in arms at Trump's manner and and, and handling of that call. What was interesting is that Trump argued, Trump's team argued, that if the Bidens had actually committed a crime, then he was within his legal rights to inquire and to seek out, ferret out this crime. It was not simply a political thing, although we all know it was, but he argued that if Biden had committed a crime, then that gave him legal predicate for ask for making that request. And that just simply being th- the fact that uh, Biden would be a likely opponent to the, Trump, uh, to the Trump re-election didn't automatically mean he couldn't ask for this inquiry of a crime. And so they dismissed the charges that the Bidens had committed any wrongdoing. While these proceedings were ongoing, the FBI were sitting on an, a laptop, which has only surfaced in the last two weeks, a laptop of Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden. In that laptop, emails clearly show Joe Biden being implicated in the emails between Hunter Biden and Hunter Biden's business partners in Ukraine. Uh, Hunter Biden had been uh, in the military and otherwise had very little business experience. He had been discharged from the military when cocaine was found in his system, while in the Obama administration. so it wasn't a you couldn't call it a political hack. But anyway, he was hired by Burisma, the largest energy holding uh, company in Ukraine, known to be very corrupt. And he was hired with no experience in gas and oil. And so people speculated that his $80,000 plus dollar a month salary and bonuses, was to gain access to his father. And then that speculation was heightened when his father, somewhat prone to gaffes and faux pas, said on tape that he had gone to Ukraine and offered a $1 billion U.S. loan to the Ukrainian government, but only on the condition that they fire in the span of five hours the Ukrainian prosecutor who was investigating Burisma the company where his son was a partner, and so Trump, the Trump team, team said there is actual indication of a crime, and therefore the question that Trump, the request that Trump made to the Ukrainian president, had predicate and was legal. I think in his precise language, it was a perfect call. I'm not sure that anybody quite concurred with that, but in short. This laptop had evidence that that was, in fact, the case, that Biden, who denied ever knowing of his son's associations or ever meeting his son's business associates, actually did meet them, actually seems to have been paid by them, and so on and so forth. So Biden's son's associates in Ukraine did connect with Biden, did meet him in person, and these emails falsified his claim where did these emails come from a laptop was dropped off at a computer repair store and then given to the attorney defending trump in his impeachment rudy giuliani and then given to the fbi as part of a money laundering investigation where they subpoenaed the laptop it was in their possession but it never came out in the impeachment which would have likely changed at least the narrative if not the outcome of that course So what are we saying, that Trump is a victim? Well, we're saying that terrible polarization has happened that has brought down all confidence in America's most trusted institutions. And whether real or imagined, the FBI does not enjoy the status it has held since its creation. The CIA does not. The office of the president, the office of the attorney general, there is suspicion and overt distrust that is not sprinkled among a minority, but that is completely entrenched in the hearts of everyone except regarding their own political party. when the story about the laptop linking Biden to his son's business associates, when it broke by the New York Post, all of the social media platforms blocked it. Under Section 230 of Congressional Code, the social media platforms enjoy immunity because they purport to be simply a marketplace for people to put their own ideas on the web. Unlike a news agency like CNN or NBC or Fox, they are immune from being sued for spreading libel and slander because they're supposed to not censor political speech or speech in general, except when it rises to the occasion of screaming fire in a crowded building. But they violated the terms of that 230 law and absolutely blocked the dissemination of this New York Post article linking uh, Vice President Biden to his son's Burisma corruption. The Trump administration, who has 25 million Facebook followers and 80 million Twitter followers, claims that it has no voice except through these direct channels of social media. They cried foul when their campaign was shut down and their ability to reach their 105 million followers was completely abridged. The New York Post, not strictly a conservative establishment, its account was shut down. And everybody started crying foul. As a result, far from marginalizing the story, their censorship brought it more into the focus of public attention. But the rhetoric and the intensity on both sides has only escalated. The intensity on the, cons- on the so-called conservative side, which is really populist nationalism, really. It's not conservatism. But the rhetoric on that side is as intense and radical as anything you've ever heard. And the rhetoric and action on the other side is revolutionary and violent. When Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, a vacancy emerged on the US Supreme Court. And the Republicans hurried to fill that vacancy, claiming it was their constitutional mandate, which few would argue. When the Democrats saw that, a chief CNN correspondent says, if they do this, it's time to burn the whole thing down. The Socialist New York Congresswoman said, young people, let this act radicalize you. Those are quotes. We don't have to wonder what burning the whole thing down is when over $1.5 billion of damage in insurance claims has occurred through the peaceful protests of this summer. In Minneapolis alone, 700 buildings were destroyed, irreparably destroyed. People have been killed, abused, raped, pulverized. So we don't really have to wonder what they're hinting at. In an unprecedented move, the left organized a committee for preserving the integrity of power transfer. And in this committee, top apparatchiks of Democratic campaigns and think tanks came together and played out scenarios where they would rehearse what they would do if their candidate didn't win. This was after most notorious... Uh, Democrat candidate Hillary Clinton made a declaration at the DNC convention: "Mr. Biden, do not concede the election under any circumstances whatsoever." That's a quote. Presumably, including if you lose. So, these this think tank, this group, came together to play out scenarios. And top Clinton uh, campaign chairman, John Podesta. John Podesta, in in these war games, these political war games that the left played, he put forth a scenario that later became public where he said, if Trump wins the election through the Electoral College, that they will partner with the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the military and have already gotten a sizable number of military brass to sign on to this, that they will partner with key figures in the military to refuse to concede the election in the threat of disrupting the republic and using that threat to coerce the electors to the Electoral College to vote counter to how they've always voted, but to simply reflect the majority vote. Everybody understands that the election of the president is done through the Electoral College in this country and not the majority vote. It was the Founders' means of trying to prevent straight democracy and mob rule. So the Electoral College, it it, it is made up of a group of voters who reflect not simply the straight majority, but they, re- they reflect the system by which all presidents have been elected from the very beginning. Hillary won the majority vote but lost the Electoral College. Do you understand? And like other presidents before her, you lose if you don't win the states. It's to give each state equal or, or more influence in the election. So if you get enough people in California and New York, the rest of the country basically doesn't matter. So the Electoral College is a way to make every state count. And it doesn't, the the, the president is not elected on a simple majority. The Democrats have been clamoring to throw this out. And in this meeting, not some fringe lunatic, but the very brilliant John Podesta, who was chairman of the Hillary Clinton campaign and served under uh, Bill Clinton in his administration, I believe as chief of staff. He said that, he proposed an option that was sponsored by many in, in that group, whereby if if their candidate lost the majority but Trump gained the, uh, the Electoral College, they would threaten and coalesce with the military in order to force an election by majority instead of the Electoral College. I read a, a, a poll this morning from... Uh, There have been more than six nationwide polls, all of which show that over 60% of Americans fear the U.S. will be in a civil war, some say within a few years, and some say within five years, while 52% say they are already stockpiling food and other essentials in anticipation for such social and political unrest. The right says that a coup d'etat has been perpetrated, starting with secret meetings, gaining false dossier information from known Russian assets, and then laundering it through the most respected institutions like the CIA and FBI in order to drive a president out of office. The others clamor, that the president is, blows dog whistles and incites racial unrest and inflames white supremacists. But both sides feel that they have the moral cause on their side, and they're willing to go to, to efforts that have never been discussed before. No major political party, the majority political party, has ever proposed an arrangement whereby a presidential election would be determined through a coalition with the military to countervene the Constitution and throw out a duly elected president. And many on the left speculate and at least raise the possibility that if the president loses, he won't concede and accept the peaceful transfer of power. He says, you talk about the peaceful transfer of power, what happened in 2016 if that's so important to you? He claims that for three years they perpetrated a spy campaign and a fraudulent effort to impeach and remove a duly elected president on the basis of a dossier and a meeting and three agents that were all known to the powers that be as corrupt and untrustworthy. But no matter how you look at it, if the left wins or if the right wins, brothers and sisters, we have crossed the Rubicon. We have gone over some kind of threshold and demarcation line, and there's no going back from this. I would say to you that there could potentially be violence in the streets, but you know that's already happening. You know that simultaneously around America... Dozens of cities were burning and are burning. You know that federal marshals and other federal agents have been blinded by lasers, have been stoned and shot. That African-American policemen have been gunned down by a movement that calls itself Black Lives Matter. An obvious truism attached and created by a movement that had in its, on its website the stated goal of dismantling the nuclear family. The political movement called Black Lives Matter was organized by two lesbians. And the number one contributors to violence in its movement are white single women. Of course black lives matter. All lives matter. Now they say that's a racist statement to say that all lives matter. But that is this is just a trick. And I don't say that to incite or encourage you to the wrong side. We have no enduring country on this earth. We seek a kingdom and a city whose builder and maker is God. But we need to be informed and we need to be aware of what is going on around us. If the left wins, we will see animosity and intensity like we have never seen before from the right. We will see pain and anguish and frustration. And we need to pray that the Prince of Peace will attract all those anguished souls into another kingdom. Hallelujah. But we need to prepare for the possibility that the world as we know it may be fixing to change. In fact, it changed already in January of this year. We can all acknowledge that. But this is but a contraction. And they're going to keep coming and coming and coming. We have crossed some kind of line. Every free society, to the extent that it is free, relies on trust more than any other overt power to dismantle trust in the institutions that have been labeled as apolitical is to dismantle the nation. That has happened. If the right gets in, the left will accuse them of stealing the election. We've already seen what the left is willing to do. They did it over the course of this past term. If the left gets in, we will have a galvanized, energized right that is more quick to the draw, less rational, pragmatic, and conservative than it has ever been in the history of such a movement. We need to wake up, we need to see the times, and we need to adjust our thoughts, our preparations, Accordingly, does it surprise you that 52% of Americans claim to already be stockpiling for an emergency tied to what 64% believe is a likely civil war? Does that surprise you? Paul told the Thessalonians, be not deceived. 2,000 years ago, his warning was, don't think the end is going to come as soon as some people suggest. He said, be not deceived. The end will not come until, and he gave a big hallmark, a big ear tag that would indicate for us the approach of the end. The end will not come until the apostasy and the falling away comes first. And that apostasy is going to be when the man of sin exalts himself above all that is called God and worshipped and sets himself up in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Brothers and sisters, whether that flies under the flag of nationalism Or the global state community. That man of sin is the corporate body. Organized by politics. By so called science. And by bloodshed and warfare. That is the body of the antichrist. It is the hideous amalgamation. And beast that rose up out of the ocean. In all ancient religions that give a vision for the end times such as hinduism, buddhism and islam they all show a strange combined beast coming up out of the earth or sea but in all these ancient religions that beast is the savior he is the messiah he ushers in the 12th imam for islam Only in Christianity is that beast seen as the epitome of everything that exalts itself against God and that is worshipped. In Revelations, there are three entities present when that beast emerges. One is the beast, first portrayed by Daniel in his vision. The second is the dragon, whom the writer simply tells us That is that serpent of old, the devil. And the third is the false prophet who looks like a man but speaks with the voice of the devil, the dragon. These three entities are present when the beast emerges. The beast has seven heads and ten horns. In Daniel, the two horns of the beast that he first shows, he only has two horns at this point and he names that they are Individual kings who represent specific individual powers. But the beast is more than his horns. The beast is statism. And it has seven heads, which might represent seven stages of development. Throughout the ages, where statism took great leaps toward totalitarianism. And it's in its final manifestation. There are three entities, the beast, the dragon, and the false prophet. What does the false prophet do? It causes the people to submit to the beast. That's not what it says. It causes the people to bow down and worship the beast. The false prophet has the challenging task of eliciting eliciting adoration from people toward a hideous Frankenstein conglomerate of creatures. The state. The state does not naturally evoke our worship. It takes a cunning media, intelligentsia, false prophet. And it says that the false prophet gives all its power to the beast. It looks like a lamb it looks nonviolent. This is education. Welcome to class, kids. This is media. We're just trying to inform you. It looks like a lamb, but it speaks with the voice of the dragon who has just been called the devil. So, who gives all of its power to the beast? Huh? The false prophet. But that's not the only one who gives all its power to the beast. In Revelations, it says the dragon gives all its power to the beast as well. You say, well, if the dragon is the devil and the beast is statism, does that mean the devil ceases to exist? No. It means he reincarnates himself in global statism as the savior of mankind. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Against the rulers in heavenly places. The rulers of dark forces in heavenly places. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Now the Lord was willing to spare Sodom for ten righteous people. And he was willing to spare the earth for eight righteous people. Amen. And I want the Lord to look down on us and help us in this situation. I don't pray for prosperity for us or for this nation. I don't pray for the American illusion, otherwise called the American dream, to continue. I don't pray for the Pollyanna fantasies of evangelical Christians to be fulfilled. I pray our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth in this time as it is in heaven. And give us the spiritual food we need to do what needs to be done in this day. And Lord, if that be to grant us more peace in order to preach the gospel, which is what he said we should pray, that's what we pray for. And if it means to vomit your people out of this atrocious adulteration with the world, so be it, Lord. Amen. We want peace. We want peace for our children. But we can't let our desire for peace blind us to the signs of the times. We need to see that the clouds are blood red with hatred and violence today. Thank you, Jesus. And we need to make changes accordingly. The first thing we need to do is remove every schism and disunity from our hearts. The devil is more afraid of unity than anything else. Independence persisted even among the apostles until the day of Pentecost. And the power of God was waiting for complete unity and submission to the spirit and voice of God. When the day of Pentecost had fully come and when they were all together in one place and one accord, God acted suddenly if we want God not to be slow, if we want God not to delay, the fastest way to achieve sudden divine intervention is to achieve unity. Unity that dies to and renounces every carnal claim, every selfish right that is rooted in the lie of justice. Mercy triumphs over justice. If I receive justice then hell can be my only destination. But if I receive mercy, amen, then I can be part of the ministry of reconciliation. The devil hates unity because it requires, it guarantees a blessing and an anointing from God. Amen? Behold, which means look at it, consider Look at how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. For there God might bless them. Is that what the Bible says? For there Yahweh commands. Oh, a blessing might be optional here. It might be in store over there. It might visit or pass by this one or that one. But if they will come together of one mind and one accord, God says, I command it. Let a blessing fall on them right now. It shall be like what? The oil which is anointing, pouring over Aaron's head and descending over his entire body all the way down to its hem, indicating the body of Christ saturated in the anointing of the Holy Spirit. The day of Pentecost was the fulfillment of the psalmist's prophecy that there Yahweh commands the blessing. Unity is not compromise. Compromise is when I swallow what I know to be true and admit or at least cop to what I think to be wrong. And we both meet in the middle. That is not unity. That is the world's counterfeit. Amen. But unity comes when Paul says preserve the unity of the spirit and the bonds of peace because... There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God of all who is over all and in you all. One. Complete oneness where we come under that God and He's over all, in all, working through all. The world offers to limit power because their power is in the hands of man. But we beg for unlimited power of God because it is the power of the Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. We want sovereignty. We don't want democracy. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. So, the first step of preparation is unity. And unity is the fruit of repentance. Repentance from deities of self, that we compete with our only Lord and Sovereign. Amen? The next step is vision. Without a vision, the people cast off the restraints of productivity, of purpose. Amen? And they perish in casting off the restraints. Vision constrains God's people to a purpose. Lack of vision causes fragmentation and unrestraint. Hallelujah. Amen. Vision coalesces and organizes and focuses us, vision, on what we're supposed to do. Second step is vision. Amen. Third step is obedience. Taking that vision and putting it into action uncompromising, unyielding, tireless action fueled by faith that comes by hearing the Word of God. Amen. With these three things, the kingdom of God is unstoppable. Hallelujah. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. It may look like a band of 12 or 120, or it may look like a band of 1,200. Amen. It doesn't matter. Whether by many or by few, God just needs two or three to be gathered in his name. Much less two or three hundred. Amen. Or a thousand or twelve hundred. Amen. Come Lord Jesus, we're gathered in your name. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Are you enthralled with the world? I'll admit to you. I pray, Lord, if it be your will, stop this but I don't know His will. My main prayer is, Lord, Your kingdom come, Your will be done. And if you see in your wisdom that what is bad for America is good for the church, so be it. Do you understand? If you see in your wisdom that we've had enough peace and enough time, so be it. God, help us. Prepare us. Amen. On a practical level, we understand, according to the Amplified, in the dispensation of the fullness of times at the apex of the ages, God is going to give an administration suitable that will bring under one head all things in Christ, things in heaven, that refers to spiritual truths and powers from above, and things on earth, that refers to practical matters. Even in Revelations, it says, come out of her, my people, so that you partake not of her sins and receive not of her plagues, indicating God cares about the natural. So the fourth step of preparation is to ask whether the practical areas of our life have been brought under the headship of Christ in the dispensation of the fullness of times. Ephesians 1.10, Amen. Did that make no sense? Did I say Biden instead of Hunter again? Do you understand? We have to take careful evaluation of our preparation. God, what could we do to bring things on earth under your headship? We already know that we've brought our submission to the truth under your headship. Things of the Spirit under your headship. Amen? What do we do to bring things on earth under your headship also? Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. It seems like God wants to help us in even practical matters or physical matters. And you receive not of her plagues. Brother Howard can tell you that when the son of the emperor Titus finally sacked Jerusalem, the Christians, or rather the Jews first, let's say, were full of nationalistic zeal because they'd had a temporary victory. They thought they'd pushed the the commander of Judea out of his position. In fact, he'd just gone to become emperor of the entire Roman Empire. And he sent his son to go annihilate them. They deluded themselves and they championed their success because they'd been fighting for so long. And at long last, we gained a little half an inch of power. But the Christians recognized the signs of the times. Over 100,000, Josephus estimated, Christians were in the Jerusalem region. And when the Jews were assuming that they had finally gained a foothold and that they were going to finally prevail politically, the Christian says, no, this is the lull, the calm before the storm. And they fled Jerusalem and they relocated in Petra. Most say Petra. Amen? Or wherever it was. Brother Howard, is that correct? Pella, thank you. Thank you. It does matter. They relocated. And when Titus came back and sacked Jerusalem, 500,000 were killed, at least. Some say over a million. The estimate is only that, an estimate, because it was a total annihilation. But Josephus points out that not a one of those who were called Christians perished in the massacre because they had heeded the voice of Yeshua to get out when they saw these things take place. Amen. And so there is a practical salvation as we see took place there and as we see Revelation says that you receive not of her plagues. Now we're not saying God's going to save us from every problem. Amen. It is through many trials and tribulations we enter the kingdom of God. So ultimately the two witnesses lie dead in the street, but there is a season where the gospel must flourish. Amen. Maybe that season is drawing to a close, but I don't think so. I think our work is only just beginning. Amen. I think our best days are just around the corner. I think our brightest light is still to shine. Our greatest witness, I believe it. I believe it with all my heart. Thank you, Jesus. And so... We need to prepare in practical ways, too. I think it's foolish to not have preparations on hand to say, if I couldn't go to the grocery store for three months, would I be okay? And ask that about medical supplies, ask that about food, water. Shelter is probably a given. But you should ask that. And if you if you can't answer that question affirmatively, is it because you have a passive trust in a system that 50, 64 percent of Americans believe is going to collapse? You say, Brother Rossi, I got a hunch it's going to be 20 years. I hope so, because honestly, it's going to take us 20 years to get ready. Amen. But they had 70 years from when Jesus made the proclamation, but they were only just ready when the trouble came. Amen. I pray it's 25, 30 years. I doubt it, but I hope so. I'm not prophesying that it's going to happen this year. I'm not prophesying that at all. I'm saying something has changed in the spirit realm. We've crossed the Rubicon. And we would fail you if we would not alert you to what's coming. If you let your oil jar go empty halfway through the crisis, shame on you. If we failed to warn you, shame on us. So we're warning you right now. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Does my, does my lack of action indicate a passive trust? 52% of Americans are stockpiling food and supplies for what they see as a social emergency on the horizon. Do you, were any of you tempted to go to Sam's, Walmart, H-E-B, to pick up, say, some some rice and beans or some toilet paper back in the early part of this year. Never before in human culture have we been so disconnected from the source of our food chains, the source of our food, rather, and so dependent on long supply chains to receive it. Never before has famine been possible by just one element breaking down. That element might be the fact that crops have been reduced. Varieties of crops have been reduced from the thousands or in in most cases hundreds down to a handful. When you have a hundred varieties of corn and you've got a pestilence that kills one, well, you've still got a good chance that one or more is going to be okay. But when you've only got half a dozen, you have reduced your odds and exposed yourself to famine like never before. It's a blessing that we are growing hickory cane on the the farm. We're struggling. We're falling short. But we're not going to stop until we've brought under God's headship even things on earth like that. It's a blessing that we're growing turkey red wheat that comes from our spiritual forefathers, the Anabaptists from Russia, when they fled in time. Amen. I don't want to be dependent on Monsanto because I don't share a passive trust in their their worthiness or their integrity that some Americans seem to enjoy. Amen. I don't want to open up my pantry and say, yeah, I'd be in a total fix if the coronavirus food shortage just lasted a little too long. Folks, it's, it's time now. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Some of us made preparations on your behalf. Without you knowing, Brother Shahar and I spoke, and he acquired 30-something tons during the pandemic of wheat in case you needed it. Amen. We, we acquired, I believe, around 10 and 8 tons respectively of white rice and pinto beans, which are the most storable, space-efficient emergency food in case people needed it. We can make that available to those who are interested at the cost at which we purchased it for. We want you to take things seriously. We don't want to scare you, but we don't want you to be looking at a red sky and and saying to yourself, there's going to be no storm today. Amen. The signs of the time are appearing everywhere, and they tell us to change our mindset, to unify, to get the vision, to obey, and to prepare. Amen. Let's everybody just pray and commit our hearts to be the Lord's servants at this time, to be the conduits for His kingdom's advance. Hallelujah. Speak to us, God. Help us, God. We are but dust. We don't see what You see. We don't know what You know, God. Make us Your people. Make us worthy of these times. We sense that we have been called to the kingdom for such a time as this, God. Help us to prepare ourselves, God, Jesus.